everyone. Welcome back to Reality 2.0. I am Katherine Druckmann. Joining me, as always, is Doc Searles. And we have our two favorite guests back again this week, Petros Kachupis, who you know, and Kyle Rankin, who you also know. Um, and before we get started, I, I wanted to remember to remind everyone to please go to our website at reality2cast.com. That is the number two. And sign up for our newsletter so we can stay in touch. I, you know, I keep them short and we just sort of update everyone on what we're thinking about that week. And that's it. But today we are talking about a couple big things. And the first is solar winds, like, because we can't not talk about solar winds. It's a huge, huge thing. You know, the, the short version is some hackers have been in, in various government agencies all over the country for at least nine months that we know of. They piggybacked on a software update and it's really, really bad. Um, so we'll go into that. And then later we have a little low-key outrage. Um, we, we, we can talk a little bit about Facebook's targeting Apple and Apple's uh, privacy initiatives and sort of hiding behind small businesses to do so. So uh, let, let's get into it. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that Kyle can give us a little bit more of a deep dive on the significance and, and also just the, the method of attack with this solar winds thing. Before Kyle starts, I just want to point out that it's interesting that you called this a solar wind thing because it you know a, a major a major hack has been named after the company that made it possible <laughs> which has to be one of the greatest branding fails of all time i know right they have to rebrand like, now like, wow how, how can they not yeah i mean it's just like wow anyway but that's yeah, all i can contribute to fail. that at this point kyle <laughs> kyle has much more to say or much sure, better so let's well, I mean, so we'll start by just saying that this is probably the it's it's not an exaggeration to say that this is the biggest security story of the year, maybe the decade uh, in just in terms of scope of attack, degree of compromise. I mean, bigger than the Office of Personnel Management hack from a number of years ago uh, in terms of same sort of thing, scope and uh, just the, the degree of potential uh, problems with this, because you, as I think you mentioned uh, when you first were introducing this, the, uh, it, we have reason to believe that, that some of these agencies who were compromised were compromised since March, which is an incredibly long time to be floating around a system undetected, capturing information. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, among other things, I think it's useful to think of this in terms of espionage. There's a lot of words being thrown around in terms of attacks and that sort of thing. Um, it's really, I think it's because there's not, to our knowledge so far, there isn't, there wasn't any damage done in terms of like, there's no ransomware. There's no one, you know, deleting files, doing anything like that. It's just capturing information that it's just, it's just that gigantic espionage campaign capturing who knows how much data but yeah so what again this is still pretty early days and by the time this airs there's probably going to be a lot more information mm -hmm. out there on it uh what we what everyone seems to know so far is that at least one of of at least two different entry points so this is just solar winds apparently as of yesterday uh was only considered one of the possible entry points. That entry point happened because there's a piece of software called Orion uh, that that SolarWinds uh, has created that a lot of, I mean, like 18,000 companies use it. Uh, and it's also important to note, you know, where SolarWinds sits in the network. So they um, have, a, they're a huge uh, vendor in the enterprise for managing networking equipment. I mean, they're just used all over the place for that. And if you think about, uh, where, what kind of access your network management equipment uh, software would be in, like where it would be, what, what it would have access to, you know, that's that kind of software typically, if you're going to uh, grant, you know, for, if you're going to use firewalls and grant access to a, a system, the system used to manage all of your networking equipment is probably going to have unfettered access to the network. So from what we understand, uh, the attackers were able to uh, compromise solar winds uh, uh, systems themselves, use that to inject a binary. Apparently, as of today, it doesn't look like they actually they modified the source code. But what instead they did was they compromised the binary uh, that was that was then shipped as an update to everyone that uses solar winds. And that 
uh, binary contained a back door, but it was signed with legitimate SolarWinds signing keys. So everyone applying the updates using the normal systems that are in place to uh, check that the software is legit, everything looked legitimate because it was officially signed. They, everyone, uh, a lot of organizations installed that update. Uh, and then at that point they had a back, there was a back door that allowed the attackers to get into the system. Um, right now there hasn't been official attribution. Some people, uh, a lot of people are pointing toward a Russian state actors as being behind this, but that's not official yet. Um, just a lot of speculation, but in any case, yeah, it, right now, at least some of the, some of the organizations that seem to have, that are, that seem to have been hacked include the Department of Treasury, Commerce, the Department of Energy, in particular, the section of Department of Energy that maintains a nuclear preparedness, um, the Department of Homeland Security, and apparently there's also a number of private companies that Microsoft has gone on record saying that there's a number of private companies that appear to have also been backdoored, but there hasn't been an official list. And, and typically, unless, unless they're in California or somewhere else that requires them to do so, a lot of companies um, aren't required to uh, disclose that they've been hacked. Oh, oh, also the city of Austin. Yeah, I, I read that one. The city of Austin, yeah. <laughs> the city of Austin, also, yeah. Yeah, they also the irony. were responsible. And what was interesting about it is that the attackers seemed to use some of the infrastructure they compromised in the US as their command and control. Because, you know, if you, for example, say you're a Russian hacker and you hack somebody, and then mm -hmm. they see there's all this traffic going to Moscow, you know, right. you, you might raise an eyebrow. So uh, what's happened instead is apparently the, the uh, Austin uh, infrastructure that was compromised was, was used as a, a launching off point because it looked less suspicious. Yeah, I saw for, that the attackers yeah um, but yeah, yeah i mean this is victim. <laughs> yeah i mean every every day or two uh, of this week it seems like there's a couple more companies or organizations that have been implicated because now they're or not implicated but that have been compromised uh there's a lot of now that now there are certain tools and signatures in place that people can use to check whether they have been attacked but um as i mentioned before the solar winds binary is only one of apparently there's one other uh, sort of foothold uh, that the attackers were able to use, but it hasn't been disclosed yet what that second one is. Uh, and the other thing is that these that compromise just allowed them to get their foot in the door. Uh, from that point, they apparently were able to take advantage of a lot of other vulnerabilities to both hide their tracks and extend their access, including getting, in some cases, complete uh, access to um, any, any authentication credential they wanted, any SAML credential they wanted, which would then allow them to impersonate any user on the network in some cases. And from what, if you read the mit, mitigation um, recommendations on the, that the US government has put out for this, uh, in many cases, it, it boils down to you must recreate everything from scratch. Yeah. Yeah. Blow it up, rebuild, because there's no, at that point, I mean, what could you do really? Oh, unbelievable. It's um, very well we were, thought out. Very well thought out. I, yeah, frighteningly. <laughs> exactly. It sucks when the, the criminals are smarter than, you know, than we are. So, <laughs> it really so, sucks. So Kyle, uh, d does this have to be a state actor? It's interesting to say, well, it must be the Russians. I, I kind of don't doubt that, it, or don't doubt much that it, it would be those, but might it just be, you know, some other troublemaker, some criminals, whatever, you know, somebody looking for leverage or or for secrets or, you know, whatever. I mean, you know? that's the problem with, that's the problem with attribution is it, it's very difficult to a hundred percent pinpoint um, who is responsible for an attack like this. Uh, they, some of the people who are experts in this field who are, who are um, considered knowledgeable in that and, and who are able to do attribution relatively well and have a good track record of it, seem to think that due to some of the methods uh, employed and some of it's um, and, not uh, circumstantial, like for example, there's been a lot, there were a lot of European, uh, US, North American uh, uh, states involved, but not, uh, there were no, uh, no Russian companies or anyone in Russia or a couple of other places that seem to have been affected by this. 
so some of that's circumstantial. I don't, I don't think all of the evidence that would then lead to attribution has been published. Uh, so we don't really know. But yeah, to your point, I suppose it, it might be possible, but I I'm expecting that just due to the, there's a certain level of sophistication that state actors tend to have that, you know, just a really skilled hacker on the side often don't have in terms of just coordination, planning, uh, and, and the ability to um, hide in these networks for a long time and overall good operational security, that sort of thing. And I was thinking, what if, if I was, if if I were one of the you know experts, maybe even somebody from Russia or China or, or some other place that has that kind of sophistication, but I'm on the market as a skilled person or team, you know, I could I could sub out to anybody. I mean, I or, you know I could work for anybody. I mean, it it just it just strikes me that that I mean you know I mean you just pretty much explained it you know that but it it seems to me that that there could be lots and lots of characters. Maybe not with sufficient expertise, but maybe if you have enough expertise, you could throw shade on somebody else. So you know, just just to throw it off the track. I mean, you know, the the Russians are typically the ones behind this kind of thing, but somebody else could be be behind it and and uh, using the Russian Russian behaviors as a smokescreen. Well, and the other thing to keep in mind, especially when we start hearing um, attribution from uh, intelligence. Uh, agencies in the U.S. is that there's mm. a lot of times that they're reluctant to dive into why they know what they know just because it might reveal sure. sources and methods and that sort of thing, right? So in some cases, it might be that just because of how thoroughly we've compromised <laughs> other things, um, we're able to see activity that we can't then talk about. I'm not sure. I wonder what hope there is now for uh, for solar wind. <laughs> you know, that. Um, <laughs> You know, we're we're just fine. I mean, look at their website. It's like nothing happened. <laughs> you know, it's like we're not we're not saying anything, but maybe I missed it. I mean, uh, what, what's interesting is is looking at so last this all sort of seemed to start with FireEye last week, which had which announced that it had been hacked, and it but their response because they were so transparent about what had happened, so and explained things so thoroughly. Uh, and were open to the security community about what they knew, and then went further further to try to uh, analyze the attack that they suffered. I mean, that's I that's what ultimately led to everyone everyone else discovering this. Uh, and so they at least, even though you know they're a security company that were ha that got hacked, most people you know even a day or so later after that was announced tend to give them a lot of benefit of the doubt just because of how responsible their response was. Yeah. Uh, if you know, if I, I, I should were... say, by the way, I think, I think I just misspoke because I'm looking at their site now. It's solar winds. They are plural and they have a security advisory and they start out with a, they have one of those annoying things where, you know, the, the, the front page animates to a bunch of sales messages basically. But <laughs> the first one is a message from their CEO, I suppose, but it's a video. So I'm not looking at it. Yeah, they have, I mean, they have a, a challenge because they're one of those companies that have long been, they're longstanding enterprise companies that just, that have more recently pivoted over to security just because of where they sit in the network. But for the longest time, this, mm. it was just a traditional network enterprise software company. So if you managed a lot of, you know, routers and switches in your data center, you would, you would potentially buy their software to help you manage everything. Uh, but these days, because so much of uh, of security is around uh, capturing network traffic, analyzing network traffic, and trying to detect attacks like this, uh, software like this has now started pivoting more towards security. Also, that's a you know more lucrative market these days. Yeah. Uh, to, to how how big that. is the company? Do we know? I'm that's not sure. I mean, pretty bit huge. Oh. Although, because of this pivot, the, my understanding is they didn't have. You know, incredibly large security side of their company. They apparently have a a job opening for a VP of security right now, um, and I don't believe that that's because the old one quit. I think it's because they didn't necessarily invest in that side of the house. I mean, that's that's true for for a lot of of enterprise companies that have switched, that sort of pivoted over to security um, or pivoted their products over to security. They don't necessarily um, reflect that change in their staffing. Uh, by having, you know, hiring a 
you know, top-notch security people on their to to have you know the CEO's ear for well, what they do. Their stock like has uh, crashed. Tale. <laughs> seeing here, they're uh, they're they're traded on the stock exchange. Their valuation is four point six billion. Um, they raised three hundred seventy five million in an IPO. Their IPO date was twenty eighteen, October twenty eighteen, so about two years ago. Um, yeah, their and their stock, you know, was generally going up since March. They had a big drop in March, uh, and I don't know why, but it may have just been. COVID in general. Um, and then it reached a high of, I don't know what it was, hard to tell, but it's well over 20 and now they're below 15. So there they are. There was apparently a big sell-off by some of their, um, some of their uh, major shareholders or executives a few days before the, the announcement yeah. of this breach, which is oh, wow. kind of interesting timing. Oh boy. Yeah. 14, 14, 18, uh, $14.18 is current, you know, down 19.43%. But they're probably a good buy right now. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Maybe. You know, I, if I was if I was the kind of person who traded in this kind of stuff, I think, you know, it's the old, um, you know, uh, sell on trumpets, buy on cannons. You know, when <laughs> when things look like hell, and the company is basically viable, it's probably a good time to buy. I mean, uh, answer instance, Petra's saw, question. Yeah, I mean, oh. you saw a similar thing with Target the other um, number of years back when Target had that massive hack, right? They didn't. Right. They, they discovered the value of having someone at a C level position, an executive that was responsible for security, because they didn't have one. And as a result of how bad that hack was, the CEO had to step down. And I think that sent a signal to everyone else um, in large companies that if you don't have someone that you can feed to the wolves when you get when you're hacked, you need to hire you know, some sort of C-level or VP-level executive to take that, to, to take that bullet. <laughs> to stand you know. on the trap door. <laughs> the escape yeah. job. Yes. <laughs> you stand on the trap door. That's your job. <laughs> no pressure. Chief, chief blame sink officer. <laughs> no, no, but the, the scale yeah. of this one is, is, is pretty terrifying. Like it, it is, it, it, we, we don't know what the consequences of it are yet. I mean, what, what are they? What are the consequences? I mean, I mean, the, is somebody going to set off a nuke at Canada just for the heck of, for fun because they got into something? Um, you got to wonder. I doubt it. What, I mean, to me, the real consequences are, are one that, you know, there's all, there's untold amounts of information on these apparently classified networks were unaffected to my understanding but on these unclassified networks that were shared around and that you can assume are compromised uh the other consequence is all of these departments now have to go through and rebuild everything from scratch yeah. which is the big nightmare you know i mean every any any of the or, these departments in any company <laughs> that had you know this kind of deep level access the only way to make sure that it's gone is to nuke it from orbit which is always mm. Having been, position, <laughs> having been in that position, having been in that position, I don't wish that on anyone. I mean, on a much smaller and, and, and recoverable scale, but I had to do that once. I had to rebuild two of our like Linux journal microsites back in the day. Am I even allowed to talk? Yeah, who cares? Like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Those, those <laughs> sites fine. are dead. I mean, it's not an day. unusual thing either. So, you but know. Yeah, that, I, I gave up. I was thing. like, I, you know, I can't, I didn't do the update in time in retrospect. And I just decided that it was easier to completely rebuild. They were, they were very small. You know, it wasn't a huge thing. Um, but, you know, it was probably a couple of weeks of work to, to recreate some things that I thought were better to just destroy and, and rebuild. So well, the, I mean, last night. Yeah, my, my wife said to me, we're, uh, we live where we can get in a pool. So we're in our pool. <laughs> she said, she said, the universe runs on maintenance. And, and I thought, that's actually true. I mean, if you don't maintain something, it goes to hell. Whether it's yep. a house or something else is a constant, it's a constant thing, you know, and when something completely gets trashed like this. And you have to kind of rebuild everything. Yeah, especially when you don't realize to... that, that the damage, how long you've been living in a, in a damaged structure, so to speak. Well, so. and, and there's gonna, there will be ripple effects in the security industry just due to the fact that this was a software supply chain attack, that at least the, one of the initial attacks was caused by a backdoor being inserted into a binary that was legitimately signed and everyone applied as an update. Uh, mm -hmm. this is not, you know, it's not the first time this has been conceived of as a problem. This is something that, that people in security have been talking about for a long time. But the problem is 
so much of our security architecture is based around the idea of trusted signatures on things. And so you just, you, you take for granted that a vendor's signature is all you need to be secure. And so much trust in the industry is hinging on the strength of those or the security of those, those keys, those signing keys. Um, even though there's history of those signing keys being uh, compromised in some cases in the past, this isn't the first case of that either. Uh, the Stuxnet virus famously had used a Microsoft signing key so that it would be legitimately trusted when it was installed in those centrifuges. Mm -hmm. Is this also a, I mean, a, a Windows thing? Is this something where it, it, I noticed Microsoft was attacked as well or something was tied in with Microsoft there? Well, my, um, I mean, Microsoft is at the forefront of, of doing attribution and analyzing attacks like this these days. They've really shown a lot of expertise in helping to shut down botnets um, and shut down other sort of malicious actors on the internet uh, and shutting down command and control uh, servers, things like that. And so they are, they've sort of dove into some of the research. It's unclear at this point, there were some reports that they also were compromised but that's hasn't Reuters reported on that. They had Microsoft has not confirmed that yet, um, mm -hmm. and so maybe they're still doing an investigation. We're not. I'm, so yeah, at, at least as of the date we're recording this, we don't know. Uh, Which maybe but, we should yeah. we should share. <laughs> what is today? Is, is it the 18th? I hope so. Yeah, it is yeah, the 18th. It is. all day long. I thought it was the 18th. On the 18th, yeah. I think, yeah. I, I think actually, incidentally, we'll, we'll release this early next week because next week is the week of Christmas and we don't, I don't really think we should release on Christmas day. So, uh, right. so I think we'll release it early. So it, it will be a little bit less stale, but you know, mm -hmm. who knows what we'll uncover by Monday. You know, what I mean, this, what this tells us is we need to revert back to the sneaker net. Just, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, that's well, a say the safer way. Well, um, I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of soul searching now about what what to do to prevent this sort of thing. And I'm sure if we had in-person uh, RSA conferences and things like that next year, you would see a lot of vendors that are now updating their marketing material to say that they somehow could have prevented this attack. In fact, mm -hmm. some people have, the day after that this was announced uh, got, got uh, marketing uh, emails from com competitors to SolarWinds saying- oh, wow. Did you see this hack? We wouldn't have been vulnerable to this, you know, which of course is nonsense. But I mean, that this, it, Ouch. yeah, there's a lot of, so there's going to be a lot of talk into how do you stop such a wide scale thing? And the mm -hmm. challenge is there's not any one thing uh, that can, I mean, it, it requires a lot of different things among them, you know, the government uh, themselves putting security expertise at a top level within the government to make recommendations that aren't simply offensive. You know, we have a lot, we have a very strong um, offensive capability, but we haven't put that same sort of investment um, in internet uh, defense or uh, mm. computer defense in the government. And the same thing kind of extends over to uh, to private companies within the US. The, the NSA more recently, uh, post Snowden has tried to pivot a little bit into being more open to uh, sharing vulnerabilities with the the wider community when maybe when they're no longer useful to them to try to protect U.S. companies from attack. So that's a bit of a defensive component, but for the most part, they've also been focused more on offense in the past. But so yeah, there's a that's one recommendation. I mean, the other thing that what's interesting is that you know this was a compromise of a binary, not source code, uh, and it looked legitimate. And like I said, so much proprietary software hinges on, and even and even free software hinges on the ability to trust a signature. So right now, if I, even on a Linux system, if I install software, uh, the way that my system knows that, that it's safe is that it checks a signing signature. And so if someone were to compromise that a binary, but then sign it and package it, my system would trust it too. So if, in that case, whether using free software or proprietary software, you could still potentially get this kind of supply chain attack, but there's one fundamental difference, which is that with free software, there's at least the possibility of detecting it after the fact uh, using what's called reproducible builds, which allows uh, a third party to take the source code that, that you, the vendor are providing or the original author of the software, um, download that and build a binary out of it 
and then compare that binary to the binary you got from the the vendor and and ensure they match and if they don't match then you can you might suspect that there's been some tampering uh, there's been a huge effort for the last couple of years um, in the Debian project, and I believe Fedora, and a number of projects, actually, a number of uh, free software projects, to uh, make as much of the software that's in the system as possible uh, able to be audited with reproducible builds. Uh, there's, uh, I think, you know, I think the Debian project, I forget what percentage they're at now, but it's a reasonably high percentage. Uh, there's still, there's some challenges to doing it, but you can imagine that it's not that it would stop this problem from happening, but what it could help prevent is this backdoor being inserted in March and installed and no one detecting it until December, right. you know, because yeah. in theory, an attacker could compromise the network, inject the binary. But if you have third parties that automatically run, automatically download the, the, the latest source code, whatever it is, uh, and then compare the binaries, then you would hope that you would at least detect it. But of course, with proprietary software, you're never going to do that because they're not going to release the source code for a third party to audit. So you bring up something, you've mentioned a couple of times that, it, that it's believed to have, have begun in March. Um, and I wonder if, if we think that's a coincidence, you know, or was somebody taking advantage of the chaos surrounding the COVID pandemic? I wonder, you know, so that's that's one question. And the second question I feel like I, I wanna mention and I will link to this article, you know, in the description, but um, I feel like it's at least amusing or maybe not at all to mention uh, that SolarWinds actually had a blog post in 2019 um, listing a con of open source software uh, uh, that it is um, more uh, risky from a security perspective. <laughs> I just thought I'd, you know, throw that yeah, out there. I've yeah, seen that circulating. That. I've, I've seen that circulating a bit online and I just thought, oh my, that is, that you did know, not age well. I used to work for a company years ago that um, had a similar mindset. The, I don't even want to call him uh, IT personnel. I mean, he was just in charge of the computers for the small mom and pop tech shop. And he was super adamant, super against anything open source. And him and I kept butting heads for obvious reasons. And I would install, let's say, Firefox. He would ha throw a fit. I would install, you know, I, I would set up these automation, automated workstations in the um, back warehouse to help, you know, streamline some of the stuff that uh, uh, the engineers back there were doing. The fact that it was running open source software, it, he refused to have it connected to, you know, his network. It just this mentality that open source was dangerous. It, it, mm -hmm. it, it lives. And, and I hate to say it, but it's, you see it a lot out there and I still don't get it. Yeah. I, uh, I remember about 10 years ago, this is kind of funny. I was in a meeting, um, with a couple of companies, one prominent hosting company and one uh, large software company. And one of them said that they, went, they got pushback from a potential customer um, at the time, a big, major, major customer potentially that said, well, you know, I don't know about open source. And again, this is 2010, but I, I don't know, you know, it feels like coding with your pants down. I love to tell that story because I think it's hilarious. And then I, of course, said, well, at least if you, your pants are down, then you have to keep it clean. I've done that. I know. I say that all the time. <laughs> I love that. It's my favorite story. But anyway, um, I would actually like to quickly read <laughs> a passage from the aforementioned uh, no, article, do. blog yeah. post, because it's kind of, oh, gosh, I'm going to try not to giggle and try to be, you know, put my serious voice on. But it says security, this is a, a, a list of cons of open source software. Security becomes a major issue. Anyone can be hacked. However, the risk is far less when it comes to proprietary software due to the nature of open source software allowing anyone to update the code. The risk of downloading malicious code is much higher. One source referred to using open source software as eating from a dirty fork. When you reach in the drawer for a clean fork, you could be pulling out a dirty utensil. That analogy is right on the money. Um, I, they don't say which currency, but I don't know what kind of money they're talking about. But yeah, I thought that was just bizarre. Um, well, well, anyway, eating shows, from a dirty fork is going to be my new favorite joke. Well, it also shows sort of a lack of understanding for how 
free software is developed because yeah. on the on the contrary, obviously you don't anyone on the internet can't simply merge something into a popular free software project and have it be distributed, right? It has at least as good of controls as your average proprietary software in terms of having project maintainers that have merge access, everyone else does and that sort of thing, right? And that you would think that in, you know, whenever this was published 2018, 2019, they would understand that the, the way that you develop software, whether whatever license it has is pretty similar in terms of you have people that are allowed to change it, people that aren't, um, and who are only allowed to submit patches, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. There will have to be a company called Dirty Fork Software now. <laughs> this, this has to happen. I mean, yeah. if I was starting a new company down, right now that's open source, I'd call it Dirty Fork Software. I just bought the domain. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm kidding. Well, and, the other, the other thing is if you if you've ever seen a company that announces that they're going to publish their previously proprietary source code um, it, and make it it's, public, it's often awful, isn't it? Well, you all you, you hear them say, "Well, it's going to we're going to need to spend some time cleaning everything up." Yeah, first. you got to clean it. Yeah, up. yeah, I know. This, you know? this is what a company a tells <laughs> me. You know, we're we're going to open source it eventually. I, I almost always tell them, "Look, I know what's going to happen. You're going to look at it and say it looks like crap, and you're not going to ever do it." You know, do it now, do it now, you know, you know but yeah. writing it's... code that, you know, other people are going to see is <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's a little... You know, this, this well, article that this, this blog post, uh, Catherine, that you um, were reading mm -hmm. from, there's this one part under the con section where he specifically states open source software might not stick around and, and, uh, oh, right. Yes. I and, this is and the I same find, guy. Yeah. Yep, and same I article. I find it entertaining because, you know, with proprietary software, if the parent company is not around, that software is also not around. And how often have we seen in the open source world when a project dies, more often than not, it gets forked. And yeah. If it's still useful, on. somebody forks it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, even hardware. Just, think of, yeah. think of good example. You know, it, while CentOS didn't die, the traditional CentOS model uh, was recently changed by Red Hat. Now they're taking a different approach with how they're uh, releasing updates, how they're structuring the distribution and what happened as a result. Now there's at least a few forks that uh, have been created, including one by the original, cre one of the original creators or maintainers of the CentOS project. So, I mean, it, it's, it just baffles me for, it, when someone mentions something like open source doesn't stick around. I, yeah, I don't get it either. It's one of the few things that guarantees longevity. For instance, on my phone right now, I wanted a local Twitter client, and there's one called Callbird, uh, which actually works pretty well. But uh, when I was going through the history of it, apparently it used to it, – it was – an example where there was a previous maintainer of the project under a different name in 2018 Twitter changed their APIs and the maintainer said, you know what, I, I can't deal with rewriting this to deal with the new APIs. I'm done. And just sort of hung the project up. And then someone else saw it and said, no, but I like this software. I'm willing to put in the work to make it work with Twitter again. And they did. And now it's a living project I'm using, you know, I use today. To me, publishing that is makes it more likely it might actually exist. For instance, you can compile and run Mosaic browser on Linux today. I like I did it really? a number of years ago. I've just seen to try it. it out. Yeah, the original, I mean, the original the web, Mosaic. Yes. Yeah, the original wow. Mosaic. Nineteen ninety-four Mosaic. Run it on Linux. Uh, wow. Now most websites won't load anymore because the moment it doesn't support JavaScript. So the moment I have you a couple that will. <laughs> yeah, my, my website loads great. It looks great too. But yeah, is is there smaller and smaller sections of the? What's fun is to take the original Mosaic. And then load the websites from companies that were around at the same time, like go to yahoo.com or go to any of the internet companies that existed at the same time and see which ones load and render and which ones don't. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, that's interesting. I'd like to grab that and play with it. It's kind of an interesting test to see what's still out there. That's, yeah. that's, I'll bet Craigslist will load. I mean, Craigslist is <laughs> loads in a second everywhere, it seems. You know, it's nice and simple, no graphics. Yeah, to know, know anything and, you know, that it works really simple and well. 
so before we move on to um, our minor outrage, um, I, so I did want to revisit my question that I sort of I sort of overwrote myself, um, and that is, uh, do we think that this attack was related? Was pandemic related? Not like directly, but the timing of it. Oh, do we definitely. Think that the time, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's not. We haven't received any official, you know, evidence of that yet. But to me, what the timing says is that there were a lot of companies that were switching to work from home for the first time. And we know that unrelated to this attack, that there were this rapid increase in phishing attacks against people who were now working from home for the first time. And a lot of companies did not have their security infrastructure set up to handle people working from home. And so there were a lot of cases where IT was scrambling to try to allow people to log into some office computer or server or system from home when before they couldn't. And a lot of attackers took advantage of this and were able to try to get, and I'm sure that the confusion and, and IT scramble in March uh, opened up a lot of companies to where mm -hmm. even if it, even without the solar winds attack, I imagine a number of companies might've been exploited through some other means through phishing attacks. Yeah. I never thought of that. I never thought of it that way. I mean, I, yeah. I work remote, <laughs> you know, I've been working remote for many years and, and the company that I work for now, I mean, they obviously were properly set up, but I, Never even gave that much thought. Well, especially considered government government agencies, they didn't they didn't work remotely. I mean, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, sure. a lot of, to an extent. I but mean, a not... lot of a lot of organizations have just sort of have perimeter security. You're if you're inside, mm -hmm. it's trusted and everything's great. And if you're outside, it's everything's bad and it's untrusted. And a lot of times, that perimeter is: Are you physically inside the office? You know, mm -hmm. are you plugged into an office switch? That sort of thing, and so if if that's if your all of your security is hinging on that, and then all the employees are now at home, then you have to deal with how do I allow someone on the internet inside my trusted network? So you know that that's the only it, everything from the outside is bad, and so you know VPNs maybe, but yeah, a lot of places were not set up for this, and also you have a lot of cases where if you have a problem, you then walk over to the IT desk and ask <laughs> for help, right? Um, mm -hmm. I need my password reset, that sort of thing. Well, now the IT person is at home as well and answering their, their cell phone or emails or that sort of thing. So they're also ripe for, I need my password reset. I, I'm locked out of this new remote system you set up, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. Well, I wonder what sort of long-term impact this is going to have on, on, on that type of security in various types of organizations. I mean, I have a feeling that the, yeah, the, 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 some of the biggest things are the ones we'll never hear about. Yeah, well, that's early. Yeah, yeah. I won't. Maybe Kyle will. <laughs> mm. um, yeah. So, so anyway, so, so I think we're maybe at a point where we could pivot, you know, to talking about maybe outrage is a strong word, but I like it. <laughs> uh, Doc, what are your thoughts on, on, uh, yeah. on this, this Facebook thing? Yeah, well, it's we it's really an Apple thing. What we're talking about. Yeah. So, Facebook so Apple, Apple Apple said that um, they announced that they were going to make some updates to their next iOS iOS fourteen, which is already out, but they've not made all of the changes to the right of the decimal point on it yet. And to make um, require that websites uh, and services and apps um, ask to follow you, ask to track you um, before they do that. And, uh, and, and Facebook split a gut because, uh, you know, they don't want to have to ask that. And, um, you know, and, they've, and, you know, they have this sort of total spoke screen. Where they say, it's all about small business, you know. Well, there are several topics here to, to, to go over. One is that I don't think most people know that Apple even has something called IDFA, which is ID for advertisers. It's buried. It is a global opt-out. You can opt out of this. But the whole, the, the first thing is they actually have an ID just for advertisers for you. It's not your name, but it is something that allows companies to track you. My position on that is they never should have had that in the first place. It's a wrong thing. Nobody, no, no phone user ever wanted an ID for advertisers on their phone. It's to make direct marketing especially easy. It's a little hook there. Everybody in the marketing business will tell you, oh, Joe, we really need that because we really need to address these things personally. No, no, you don't. You know, I, uh, you know, no, nobody getting a newspaper or magazine would like it to come with a little tracking beacon on it so people would know what you've read 
on every page. You know, that's ridiculous. And um, but anyway, so that's the first thing. And probably I'm alone at that. I'm alone in saying that ID for advertisers never should have been in there in the first place. But this look at this small business case that Facebook makes. There are actually two parts to this. One is that I have heard from multiple people at Facebook in the past that a a non-dirty secret about Facebook is that a great deal, if not even a majority of their income is actually from small business. It's, it's the, you know, it's the gift shop on main street. It's the tackle, you know, the, the, the bait and tackle company. It's the campground. It's the, um, the nail salon. It's the, it's these small operators that want to reach people in a neighborhood. They want to be, reach people with a common interest, things like that. And, and two, Facebook's credit on this, not credit, I mean, but just to explain a little bit better than most people know about them, they are not tracking you necessarily personally. I mean, they they gather up a crap load of information about you, but it goes into a database where an advertiser could say, I'm looking for these characteristics. And you get hit with an ad that seems to be personalized because you happen to match a whole bunch of those characteristics that they're looking for. Um, it is it is kind of unique that way. There's not anything else quite like that. So it's kind of hard to generalize with Facebook to every other company in the world. Also, if you're on Facebook, you kind of know that's what the deal is. I mean, you know that you're being followed. There's not a secret here. So that's, you know, but by the way, the people have spoken to Facebook, some have promised to come through with some actual numbers and how much of your business actually is small business and not big companies like Procter and Gamble trying to brand, and I suspect it's actually a lion's share. As for the IDFA hurting that, I'm not sure that they even need the IDFA to 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 target their ads. I'm really not sure that they do, you know. But maybe they do. Um, I, I don't think it's a loss in any case. I don't think Facebook's hurt in the least by it. But in you know, the EFF has a nice piece on it. Look up the EFF and IDFA and and Facebook, but. But an interesting thing here is that the IAB, the Interactive Advertising Bureau, did a similar thing when it, when it really successfully stomped out Do Not Track a few years ago. They ran lots of ads because Mozilla was the first and only, at the time, browser maker to turn on Do Not Track by default in the browser. You had to kind of opt out of it on your browser. Uh, but Do Not Track was never anything more than a polite request. But the IAB ran a campaign, which a prior guest on this um, podcast uh, told me was actually $110 million. They spent $110 million to just about flatten Mozilla on this thing. And Mozilla caved. They caved and they took that thing out and they, they didn't end up doing that. But the campaign was Mozilla is hurting small business. It was exactly the same kind of thing that Facebook's saying now. And it worked. I mean, it, it, it actually worked. Apple is a much bigger target. Apple's not going to do a damn thing. Apple is, it, if they want to continue being the privacy company, they, uh, you know, they need to uh, uh, stand up to Facebook on that one. I think they are just by ignoring them, frankly. They did back off on when they would roll this thing out. But I, you know, anyway, I think it's a, um, it's a bogus, it's a bogus thing on Facebook's part. Hey, listen, I, I don't mind the tracking. I mean, this is how I started to join all my whiskey clubs. You know, all of a sudden <laughs> Facebook is like, hey, you like whiskey. Here's a bunch of clubs for you to join. And I actually joined some. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, so, I mean, Facebook, Facebook and Google are, are the biggest targets of editorial ire about advertising online. And both of them have would amount to really unique, not widely shared business models that they basically rely on. The one for Facebook is the one I just described, which is, you know, they're basically just matching a whole bunch of characteristics with populations that that have those. You know, you're a whiskey drinker, you might be interested in this, right? And um, the, you know, and Google makes most of its money from search advertising. Search advertising is, you know, except to the degree it's based on tracking you, which is very little. I mean, if you if you want to know the height of Mount Everest, um, you know, the answers that they give you for vacations in Nepal or whatever those are likely to be are not a hell of a lot more informed by them having tracked you all over the web before you ask that question. They're, the ads are generally totally contextual. 
And they're based on the actual search. They're based on the actual intent. And they could actually live without any tracking behind that at all. They can live totally without that. So, but where Google is actually, you know, where where the, the feds are going after them right now is that they actually run the back end of these things too. They are part of the machinery by which the rest of the ad tech, I call it a FICO system because it's, it's fecal. Um, but the ad tech FICO system is this four dimensional shell game where nobody knows what the hell's going on. And Dr. Augustin Fu has been on the show already. Um, has a wonderful thing called page X-ray. So if you look up page X-ray, you'll find his thing that tells you how you're being tracked. And that um, Google is totally involved in all of that. And that's, that's a different thing. It's a completely different thing than the way they make most of their money. So, so that's a different thing, right? So anyway, I'm not being as articulate as I'd like to be on this, but, but, they're, but they're, these are different species of advertising. You know, and the kind of advertising you got on TV or you get from a billboard is entirely different again. That's old-fashioned, non-tracking-based advertising. And that's what creates brands. They're, every brand in the world, other than maybe Trader Joe's and Zara, which don't advertise, um, uh, you know, were made by, by, uh, by traditional advertising that's not tracking you at all. It's not personal. It isn't supposed to be personal. It's just aimed at populations. And I think I think there's you know there's a definite trend. We we talked uh, offline about GitHub and announcing that they've they're eliminating yeah. third party third party uh, tracking. But you know it's I think Facebook is either going to respond by uh, I think initially it's just going to be fighting back, but at some point the the tide will wash over them, right? I mean if you have a, a somebody as big as Apple um, following, let's say. The rest of us <laughs> and Facebook sticking to their tracking guns. I don't know. I, I feel like the apples of the world are going to win, but. Um, well, well I, I think, well, the apples of the world, I don't think there's a plural there. I think there's only That's one true. Yeah. What, is, um, what would that even but, mean? But I think there are, I mean, if you include in say DuckDuckGo and Ghostery and a few other companies that are disconnected, that really, you know, are in the privacy business as it were, and their position is privacy. Um, Apple's taking the lead there, and and uh, I, I commend them for it. Um, I just think that they they made a mistake by putting the IDFA in the in the phone in the first place. You know, you shouldn't be identifiable to anybody other than them, and maybe their your phone carrier. You know, and then the rest of it's all up to you how much you want to you know reveal of yourself to any company that you deal with. But there shouldn't there should not be a tracking hook on your on your phone for advertisers any more than there should be one on your body. Your phone is an extension of your body right now. You've got it in your pocket everywhere. It's almost part of you. That should not have a hook for other, for parties you never were in touch with. An interesting thing, and one of the pieces I read is that 30% of, of iPhone users ha have opted out. They have turned off IDFA anyway, and you have to dig down to find it. Uh, I'm not even sure it's called IDFA, but I think it's something that says, "Do you want to, do you want to be tracked for advertising purposes or something?" Um, and but th that thirty percent have bothered to do that is that's a pretty substantial population when nobody has told you to do it and it's not easy to do. Yeah. Well, on that note, I think uh, I think we've covered it. Any 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 final thoughts? I do have actually one, and that's something that I don't think I mentioned earlier. And if I did, um, forgive me for. Uh repeating myself. And that is, can we please stop trying to undermine the whole idea of encryption? And by we, I mean, governments around the world. I mean, by we, I don't mean us. <laughs> I yeah, mean, yeah. Yeah, I no, mean the, the, culturally, can we please stop fearing encryption? So I think a good case for happens. that is, do you think secrets are important for human beings? Do you think that it's important for people to be able to have secrets? with other people uh, to share. Absolutely. And as long as, as long as secrets are, are something desirable in society, we should have crypto in, in the digital part of, of, of our social fabric. We need crypto in order to have secrets with each other in order to have, um, it isn't so much having a secure channel as, as much as it is to have a private one, you know, people need to be able to communicate privately. And the fact that, you know, the criminals can use that. It was, that's too bad, yeah. you know, but I, but I, but I, I actually wonder to some degree, I just, I'm reading a science fiction piece by somebody I'd love to have on a show. There's a book uh, called Shepherd's Drone by Brett Frischman. 
and it's set in the future. It's a science fiction thing where um, people coming and going are known to the buildings they go into by their biosignature, as he calls it, uh, as a matter of course. And I thought, is that really where we're going to end up, where we're just known by our biosignature when we come and go from something? And it might be true. I don't know. I, I don't want that to be true, but it might be, you know. Um, but that said, it's, that's a separate thing. I think we do need crypto and, and backdoors are a terrible idea. You know, they're terrible just a terrible idea. idea. I think my, my final wisdom on it, and we'll see if anybody has any others, but any other, but um, I think, you know, there's no such thing as a secure encryption backdoor. If you insist on having a backdoor, you're going to get backdoored. <laughs> I mean, that's, right, exactly. it boggles yeah. my mind that anybody thinks otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I used to have a house where I always left the back door of the garage open and, um, and it was very handy, honestly, you know, yeah. for me. But the house was not very well protected. But you know what? Sometimes I forgot my keys, and yeah. on the whole, well, but, that's an interesting you know, metaphor. But I, th- I, I mean, I but I actually think that that's what my point there is that I think we need a better door. It's kind of it's kind of like um, you know the I don't know. There's probably a better a better metaphor that I can't think of on the fly for something that's a vulnerability rather than, I mean, look, if you look at it as you need to build this vulnerability into your system for, to help us out. Hi, we're the police. Can you please leave a vulnerability in your house so we can get in? Leave us a key under the mat. Give us a, give us a, no, we we promise no one else will find it. Yeah, Nobody (laughs) will find it. Let us know. Trust us. We, we, you know, we'll know you've got it there. That's just fine. You know, that's, I mean, that's because that's basically it. Like, let's have a vulnerability in our systems so the right people can find their way in and the right people, of course, get replaced. Yeah, there are yeah, no right people. Okay, well, well, thanks everybody if you've made it this far. Uh, and thank yeah. you to Kyle and thank you, Petros, for joining us. Thank you. See, see you next yeah, year. Anytime, anytime. <laughs> <laughs> Yay!